This is part three of episode 31 on the Tactical Breakdown podcast, rounding out our conversation on the Instructor's Roundtable on officer-involved shootings. Here you go. Welcome to the Tactical Breakdown, a podcast for law enforcement, military, and emergency response professionals. Stand by. Where we help you bridge the gap and talk training, tactics, and leadership with the best subject matter experts in the world. Here is your host, Adam Kanakin. All right, welcome back. This is part three of episode 31 on the Tactical Breakdown podcast. The conclusion of our instructor's roundtable on officer-involved shootings with four of the top subject matter experts in the world. I'm really excited to put this out there for everybody, and I'm excited to announce that the next instructor's roundtable is, of course, going to be on firearms training, taking place on March 26th at 6 p.m. Central Time. Last Thursday of every month at 6 p.m. Central, we're doing these roundtables. Unfortunately, our, our initial plan to conduct a live roundtable at the ILETA conference is no longer available due to the COVID-19 outbreak, but we still have the same panel of instructors and we'll be putting it on as usual, just like these previous two roundtables via video conference. So I hope you join us for that. You can ask questions over the instructors. You can take part in the conversation. March 26th at 6 p.m. Central Time. Mark it on your calendar, and I'm going to see you there at the next roundtable. So let's finish off this instructor's roundtable on officer-involved shootings. Here you go. Someone's getting some crazy feedback on their uh, on their system there. I don't know who it is. Um, okay, awesome. I mean, that's that's a fantastic thing to to end on there. Um, I do want to do this. Uh, I, does anybody have one anything else to bring up on this before we give some stuff away? Not on that topic. So go ahead and do your thing, and then we can start on a different but related topic. Perfect. Okay, that's easy enough. So essentially, um, it looks like we've had ten entries. So uh, what I'm going to do is I have them lined up on an Excel sheet here, um, and uh, I randomize them. So, uh, Jim, between 1 and 10, <laughs> hard, it's a hard one. <laughs> 54. Favorite number. Number 4? No, 54. Okay, well, okay. That, that, one so ten, we're we're going to give you another shot at this. All right, 8. <laughs> eight. eight. Yogi Berra's number is my favorite number. 8. Okay. Um, eight is Danielle. So Danielle S, if, uh, if you're still on, you, uh, you win, you win a, uh, free access and here's how it's going to work. So, um, essentially what's going to happen is we're going to touch base via email and, um, I'm going to send you an email. We'll touch base and you're going to get access to a training course from caliber press. Um, and it's going to be, I don't know where you're located. But um, anyone that's close to you that's being held in the United States, they're going to give you access to that course free of charge. So you pick which course you want to go to, and um, and you're going to get access to it. And Jim's going to send you an autographed ver- uh, book of Street Survival, which looks like this. Nice. Huh? The Bible. Uh, the Bible. Yeah. <laughs> Bible, Bible, two. Bible, two. The new Bible 2. Yes. Right. Survival 2. So yeah, just get me uh, the, I, I need to get her mailing address. And uh, when I get back to your office, sign it and we'll, we'll have, uh, I'll have it shipped out. Awesome. Yeah. We'll get all that squared away. Um, also, so another thing that we do want to do giveaway, um, and I can do this. Uh, I'll, I'll put myself center screen here for you guys. Um, so the other thing that we do want to give away is for our, tactical gear giveaway that we've been running since january we are running it each and every month but we kind of did a split one half of january and all of february so um if i look at the number of entries for the draw here and uh, i'm just going to bring it up so we did this on king sumo the reason we did that is because it's completely automated there's no way to beat the system or game the system um it tracks ip addresses and everything like that so it's completely legit we had 2785 entries and um, which is a lot of entries. There was only 300 and so contestants, um, a lot of entries for each one. 
but it was awarded and it goes to Ronnie Gray. So Ronnie, here's the deal. If you are active duty or a member of law enforcement, uh, corrections, military, or emergency response, you can win this. You're, you will win this. Um, what I will do is reach out to you personally and we'll get in touch. If you are a member of law enforcement, um, one of the things that uh, Tony Blauer did when, when I teamed up with him with Spear, um, he's going to also give you access to three of his law enforcement restricted courses, uh, applications for the gunfight operator and CQB drills and sharpening and strengthening drills. So uh, if you're at law enforcement, you get that little bonus add-on. It's 400 bucks plus worth of gear and equipment from our friends at LA Police Gear and Patch Panel. So that's exciting. So uh, you, congratulations on winning that. You are the first winner. winner. And, and the the next thing that's going to be coming up is for our instructor of the year. Now, um, I've had probably, I think if I, I checked it yesterday, but we had 12 uh, nominations, an extra two today. So 14 total nominations from you, the the fans and listeners of the show. And so what it is was you can go on to the breakdown.ca forward slash contest. There's an instructor of the year tab. You click onto that and you're able to nominate an instructor in law enforcement. Can't nominate yourself, but you can nominate one of your instructors who you feel deserves recognition. And, and as we all know, there are a lot of really great instructors who will never go out and say, hey, I deserve recognition for this. So what we wanted to do um, with our partners, with uh, LAPG, Patch Panel, with Blower, with Caliber Press, we wanted to put something together for the instructors. So at the end of the year, we're going to have 12 nominees total. We're going to release one each month. At the end of the year, that person is going to win a prize package worth over $5,000. So that's a special gift to them. Um, it's something that we're really excited about doing. So today's winner, uh, the first instructor nominated, and the reason why he was picked was because we had four separate um, people nominate him as an instructor. And that's obviously our friend, Mike Musango out of Syracuse. So Mike, thank you so much and congratulations for what you do, sir. Um, you've been a guest on the show um, and uh, you know I really appreciate what you have done. And obviously there's other people that appreciate what you have done. Um, I do want to read out one of the, um, uh, I, I'll, I'll keep it confidential, um, but I do want to read out one of the submissions that was uh, that was given out. Um, so I just have to bring that up so I can find it here. Um, and I'm just going to read it out there. And I just want to, you know, share a little bit about why Mike was nominated. So um, it said, I'm nominating Mike because he has personally inspired me and never gave up on me. Um, they were a recruit in one of his recruit classes. They had a really hard time uh, with some of the physical training. They were solid with a lot of other things, but they were really lacking in the physical department. Anyways, it turns out they ended up failing pretty badly on one of their evaluations to the point where they could no longer continue in training. And Mike being Mike, you know, went in and, and picked that person up off the ground and gave them the motivation to continue fighting to, to do what they wanted to do, which was become a police officer. So they continued their fight and, uh, and Mike ended up inspiring that person to come back and now they're back in uh, training and to become a police officer. So just one of the many stories that I've gotten for Mike, but that one um, I really, really enjoyed. And so congratulations to Mike. You're eligible to win for our instructor of the year. I'm also going to send you one of our instructors roundtable shirts and, uh, and some other gear and swag that we have for you. So congratulations to you, sir. So with that all said, let's, uh, let's bring everybody back on. Um, yeah, I mean it's uh, it's pretty exciting that we, what we get to do. So uh, I hope uh, I hope everybody gets a chance to to nominate somebody and uh, and enter these draws to win. So that's pretty cool. Well, by the way, Mike is you know he's pretty solid, and the fact that uh, he got nominated doesn't surprise me in one bit. Yeah, another four science guy. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Right? Uh, yeah. Uh, he just I think he just became an instructor with four science too. So that's, that's correct. Pretty cool. So that's pretty that's cool. correct. Okay, so let's jump. Let's jump back into the. Let's jump back into the show. Um, we've talked about human factors. We've talked about some of the investigations. Um, and if you guys are comfortable with it, I would like to jump into the mental health portion of it, the mental portion of it for the officers that are involved. So um, one of the things that I want to do is, I mean, I know Chris's story, and I know, um, I know what he's 
what they've put together out in Toronto um, and what he's been involved with. So, Chris, maybe I'm gonna I'm gonna leave it to you, man, to kind of start off with with your thoughts on um, on mental health for officers and and what it means and what they should be doing and shouldn't be doing. Okay, um, let's go. The main thing is, um, I, I try to look at you know pre-incident present incident and post incident when we start training our officers in, in regards to this and like uh, pre-incident you know you know you're training and everything start getting together a plan of what's going to happen uh if you're involved in a shooting right have a plan for uh what you're going to do with your family especially with ages of, of children uh they're going to be going to school uh are they the age where current events in uh, in the media are brought out uh, obviously, during the shooting, it, it, it's occurring. Uh, the big uh, issue is, you know, the aftermath of the shooting, obviously, and, and the toll it's going to take on the officers. Um, in policing, we show up in the midst of chaos. We take control, right? We control the situation. We take control and start giving direction to, you know, calm things down or resolve an incident. Countering to that, once we're involved uh, as, as a shooter in one of these uh, incidents, there's a loss of control uh, on what's going to happen with us right afterwards. Um, not to make light of it, but it's it's beef or chicken. You're getting on a flight, you want beef or chicken. You have no control over that aircraft or anything else that's going to go on. So once you're involved in that shooting, there's a lot of things are going to be occurring that you don't have control over, and it, we try to take control of these things. Understand that you've lost that capability right you can't uh further explain or these people have to understand this or you know any putting anything else into that incident that incident is done it's going to get investigated um you need to start looking after yourself big things are you know maintain a routine and right? go to the gym uh do things don't you know um you know sequester yourself and have no contact uh Explain things, and if you have a family plan ahead of time, that's really, really helpful, right? So your spouse, if they're not in uh, in service or so, they understand what's going to go on. Uh, the other part is that we're very protective, so we may try to feel we're protecting spouses, family members by not, um, you don't have to discuss the um, exact details of the incident, but you can discuss the uh, process that's going to go on uh, after the fact. If we start excluding them on a basis of trying to protect them and you know look after them because that's what we do, uh, they get that sense of being excluded, and then that can cause more friction at home as well, and that's going to be detrimental. Uh, so, sort of what we've gotten into is there's lots of programs out there for officers with PTSD and. Um, you know, uh, either services or uh, counselors, et cetera, PTSD. Let's try to stave it off so officers don't get PTSD. Like, there's lots out there to help treat them once they do, but let's try to prevent that. And so what happened was after um, my involvement in my shooting, four nights later, we're, uh, my, my gun team was involved in another shooting, right? And it's like, okay, these, maybe we shouldn't have got back to work four days later. Right. Everything's going to vary uh, per officer, um, <clears throat> teams, protocols, etc. Fast forward a few more years, uh, we're involved in another shooting on my team. Right. And it was like at that point, it was like, no, the way things happened when the investigation after mine, uh, the coroner's inquest uh, afterwards, let's start looking at the well-being of the other members involved. So now we'll have a a process, you know, obviously respecting the laws and the policies uh, that we're governed by. Now it's a matter of uh, more of a, a peer support group um, where we'll have a couple officers who were previously involved in it, and it's all cleared and all, all finished and done, can now, you know, go up um, <clears throat> and meet up with these other officers that are, you know, newly involved in these things and explain some of the process. We can explain some of the aspects of, um, you know, your, your, your disturbed sleep patterns, um, your, your, your dreams that may not be accurate, um, things like that. So they understand that it's not, you know, strange for them to go through it. Like, you know, am I having an issue with this? Some of these things are perfectly normal. And we're finding if the officers know that, 
it's a lot easier for them to process through that, especially in the first two weeks or so of being involved uh, in an incident. You know, there's there's a lot of things that go into this, and I guess we can kind of touch it from from a few different perspectives here. One being the command perspective, um, and then the officer perspective. So let's can we talk about quickly? Um, and because I know Chris, you and I had actually talked about this a little bit too, but the the process that happens right immediately following the shooting from the command perspective, and this goes into what we've all spoken you've all spoken about already today, which was the process in the in the hours and days following the incident. Immediately following the incident, there's there's been a change in how agencies handle these officers, right? They obviously the the firearm, their clothing, equipment, everything has to be turned over for evidence, those types of things. But those processes have changed. They've gone from from just taking everything away and putting you in a box for to sit and wait to now getting those officers re-geared up. Here's another firearm. We're going to the range. We're getting some some rounds down range and we're getting you back out, depending on your mental status and your physical capabilities. So can we can we talk about that process and what um what the command should know, the, the sergeant, whoever whoever's in charge of that officer when the situation occurs, what should they know and what should these processes be? And, and should we be developing new processes for, for when these incidents happen? Well, I, it, it, we uh, do a lot of traveling uh, down to uh, Albuquerque. And I'm trying to think of the term right now. Uh, what is it, Laura, when, when you take like second graders to the museum and you hold hand, they a hold field trip? No, no, no. <laughs> no, your buddy, your buddy, your your uh, buddy system. Yeah, we, yeah, kind of a buddy system, I guess. Buddy but, system. Yeah, but I don't. Re- I, don't I forget. They're going to make fun of me in Albuquerque when I'm there in two weeks ago. But what what happens is, as soon as, in fact, before shooting, what they do is they they um, indicate who they want um with them after they shoot so a, a buddy of mine simon uh, uh, uh drove it down there got in a shooting and uh, shot and killed a guy and uh they already had this set up to who his buddy was going to be and they were able to get a hold of him and buddy shows up and it's just the two of them and whatever happens between those two people nobody could ever find out about it they they talk about it they're able to process information so they have a proactive uh, approach in that agency for that it's the smaller agencies. And, and if you think about it, uh, I think I think the number is uh, 88% of all the agencies in the United States are under 50 officers. So uh, a lot of these agencies aren't prepared for it. I mean, look at Ferguson. Ferguson just flat out wasn't prepared for what they got hit with. This is, again, where a task force would be good. Uh, but, but uh, you know, the buddy system where you have somebody next to you, and that's a proactive step. One of the things that we talk about a lot in street survival is, is, is in this in this vein is two things. One, besides what we've already talked about, that this should be training three or four times a year. This is going to happen once you do shoot somebody. This is the protocol we're going to have. But two things that we, we, we caution. Number one is you should decide now how you're going to feel if you, you're going to take a life. Now, that sounds kind of weird, but we prepare for We at least try to prepare for everything else, you know, um, and, and it's not going to it's not perfect. But ahead of time, you, you have to be able to say to yourself, look, if, if I'm in a position where I take somebody's life, it, that person created that moment, not me. So I have to have. So I think a approach to that is gear yourself up for that now, because uh, why should you wait for this? Why, why should you wait? And somebody said to me one time, I, well, I have no idea what I'm going to feel because I haven't done it yet. I said, if I take my gun out and shoot you in the knee, what are you going to feel? He goes, pain. I go, yeah, but I didn't do it yet. So, you know, right. So just prepare yourself for it. Um, and, and number two is, is don't let anybody else tell you how you're supposed to feel. You know, everybody's going to feel different. You know, I, one of my, one of my funniest stories is a, a, a guy about six foot six, about 15 years ago, Las Vegas comes up after we do our emotional survival part of the two day. And he's holding hands with his wife who is like five foot tall. It was just crazy to look at him. And she starts talking right away. And she's not a cop. And she says, boy, this is great. You know, the emotional thing, we've been going through problems for like the last year and a half. And I said, Oh, you know, I don't want to get into counseling. I go, well, what happened? And he, she says, he killed somebody 18 months ago. 
And I said, oh, and I looked at him and I go, and you're having a problem with that? And he goes, not one little bit. <laughs> and, she, and she goes, and this is a true story. She goes, see, that's the problem. I said, what? Because we're Catholic and he shot and killed somebody and he doesn't feel bad about it at all. <laughs> so, you know, they had gone to counseling over this and, and, and I can't even get into the language he used, but I just, it popped in my head. So I looked at him and I said, why don't you feel bad about it? I just want to know. And he goes, I'll tell you why. And he went off. And he goes, this guy, and he bleep, 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 bleep. He gets out of the car. I'm just stopping him for speed, and he starts shooting me. I got her and four kids at home. Who's going to take care of this? So this mother, you know, so he goes, I was mad. I was in the moment. I put rounds on on my dentist. I didn't feel bad about it at all. Now, that doesn't mean there's anything wrong with this guy. Um, he was prepared. And one of my instructors, Ray DeCunto from Florida, he swat twice. And he said to me, he said, I, I prepared myself prior to doing it. How, how am I going to feel after I – after I take a life and he, he twice had to do it. Can, can I follow up on what uh, Chris and uh, Jim were talking about with this mental health uh, um, issue? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Please. So um, there, Jim, you're, you're 100% correct. Um, and uh, when you say that, that there's no hard and fast rule of how people react um, you know, one of the things that I always think about when I'm on my way to an officer involved shooting incident, you know, whether it's five minutes after the fact or an hour after the fact is, OK, I just have to be mindful of what the officer, what he's feeling or what she's feeling. And and I gauge my um, reactions and my actions based on what they're feeling. I've, I've responded to incidents involving officers that were cool as a cucumber. Um, sometimes it might've been their second or third shooting incident. Um, and they react, you know, um, sorrowful, um, crying. Others have acted, you know, like they're cool as a cucumber and there's no hard and fast rule about that. So I, I just, you know, I want officers to understand if they're listening to this, that there is just no right or wrong way to to react to, to these types of things. Everybody comes to an officer involved shooting incident with their own you know, upbringing and their own biases and their own, you know, whatever. And, and there's no no right way or wrong way. Um, the um, from a legal aspect. And I think this is really, really, really important because um, finally. Um, uh, you know, I was, I became an officer in 1986 and, you know, things have, have changed drastically within the last 35, 40 years. Right. And, uh, um, but, uh, today finally we're, we're seeing, we're, we're, we're trying to focus on our officer well-being. Um, and, and in my humble opinion, it seems to have taken off like within the last maybe two to three to five years. We're, we're talking about officer suicide. We're talking about, you know, post-traumatic stress injury, um, you know, to officers, you know, because they're seeing things that normal people don't see on a daily basis. So with that being said, I, I want to spend just a couple of minutes talking about um, the aftermath of an officer involved shooting, particularly when it comes to our peer support officers. Um, because again, we're seeing just within the last few years that, hey, we should have, you know, a peer support officer available for the involved officer, you know, a buddy system, uh, somebody that he or she can talk to. But I caution and I stress the word caution. I caution police officers that do engage in a peer support system. You've got to be familiar with your state laws because anytime an officer is told by a peer support officer, hey, what you tell me is going to be confidential. And when that peer support officer says that to the involved officer, he or she is telling the truth, meaning that peer support officer is not going to go blabbing his or her mouth to his coworkers or her coworkers or friends and family members. It's going to be confidential, you know, between the, the involved officer and the peer support officer. But let's say that there's a civil rights lawsuit, you know, two, three years after the fact, and let's say that the peer support officer is called as a witness in a deposition. And then the plaintiff's attorney, the, the attorney that's suing the, uh, the individual um, or the, yeah, the plaintiff that's representing the family of the person who died um, is suing the involved police officer. He asks the question of the, the peer support officer. So did you have a conversation with the, um, the officer that was involved in the shooting? Yes, I did. 
And when was that conversation? Well, we had multiple conversations. All right. Well, um, how many conversations did you have? I don't know, four or five. All right. Let's talk about the first conversation. What was said? Now, the attorney representing the officer will object, saying that privilege is confidential. Depending on what state you're in, here in the United States, I, I don't know what the rules are uh, in Canada, and uh, you know, perhaps Steve can correct me on that, but here in, in, in the United States, there is no privilege that is associated with any communication between an officer and a peer support officer, unless there is a state statute that specifies there's a privilege. And I'm here to tell you that it's only been within the recent past few years that we've got states that are enacting legislation to protect the communication between a peer support officer and the involved officer in an officer-involved shooting. But the majority of those states don't have that. So while it's true that a peer support officer you know, may, tell the, may tell the involved officer, hey, whatever you tell me is going to be confidential, that, that's a true statement. But when it comes to a criminal prosecution or a potential civil rights litigation, it may not be what we call legally privileged communication unless there is a state statute that allows for that privilege to apply. And, and if right now, and I, I don't know all of the states that have that uh, legislation, but there's close to a dozen states that have that legislation. And I think that's really, really important for officers to know, because I don't want officers who are involved in officer-involved shootings or other critical incidents to have this false sense of security that what they say to a peer support officer is, you know, it will never be exposed. Chris, do you, do you know what the the laws are up here? I mean, when it when it relates to that, um, well, I can't speak for all of Canada, obviously. Um, again, as Laura says, it's going to vary by jurisdiction, right? Uh, province to province, it, it's going to vary, right? So to speak specifically, you know, there's so many variances there. You just have to know, like in regards to anything in uh, in uh, a shooting. Know your policies, know your governances, right? That's that's not there just to uh, pen you into something, but your policy, your 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 protective blanket, like work within your policies. Know exactly what they are, right? And especially if you know these things prior to uh, an incident, right? Um, this can be that much better. It's much much more uh, efficient and confident on the road. You know, know your policies, right, and then you know use those as your as your protection. So uh, to say w- what they are again, they're going to vary across Canada and then within your department policies as well. It was interesting. Um, one of the guys that uh, who's been on the show and who was on the last roundtable, uh, Scott Savage. One of the points that he made was having OIS checklists. Um, a checklist for the officer, a checklist for the supervisor, and then a checklist for uh, the command team um, as to what should happen. Like, so just general information so that, you know, it's just like your your notebook, right? Everybody has your notebook. This is, these are the right, you have to write, you reference your notebook, right? You need to do a suspect description, you reference your notebooks. If you're involved in a shooting, here's a reference for you. Do, do, either, do any of you know any jurisdictions or any agencies that have those um, or should they have them? Can, can I just speak on, on, on that? Um, because uh, in my experience, I don't represent just one agency. I represent police officers from dozens of agencies throughout the state of Illinois. And um, I can't believe that in this day and age that um, I think it's safe to say that the majority of police officers or police agencies within at least the state of Illinois, they do not even have a policy regarding um, officer-involved shooting investigation. Nothing. So then when the first officer-involved shooting occurs in that agency, we've got individuals, you know, the officer and the administrative staff, you know, basically running around like chickens with their heads cut off because they just don't know what to do. Um, But there are some agencies, and I work very closely with some some really good agencies within the state of Illinois, and they do have a a policy regarding officer-involved shooting, and they do have checklists. And uh, I'm I'm a huge fan of those checklists because even with a policy, you know, um, our human emotions may take over, 
uh, and and to have that checklist, it's it's very important for the administrative staff, you know, to look out for the best interest of the officer, and it's also important for the involved officer to have a checklist. And and by the way, it's not you know, um, it, we, not only should we have a checklist or a policy, we need to have training on those things um, because without that training, it, you know, basically you might as well just throw it out the window. I was going to touch on the same thing, and, and I'm glad that Chris and Jim, who've been involved in shootings, can speak on this firsthand knowledge. So it's great. But, yeah, you have to have a policy in place before the incident happens. And whether you're a small agency or large, you have to have something in place. And if you don't, then you need to start working on that now. But there should be something. And in Philadelphia, obviously, a larger agency, when a police shooting happens, the employee assistance program kicks in. So we have a that's the peer support and they're trained counselors who respond to the OISI unit to meet the officer there and walk them through what can happen, de-stress them. And they're trained in doing that. And they speak to the officer in the room by themselves. Everybody else has to leave and it's, it's private, which it has to be. And at some point, the officer will have to meet with a mental health counselor, professional mental health counselor. But I think uh, going back, and if you found it, Adam, the um, couple of things, the, the one document for the stages after a shooting that an officer goes through, um, there's different stages, kind of what Chris alluded to. Um, we can pop that up there if not. And then the other with um, something about officer, we just talked about an officer knowing their policy, number one. But even if you don't, maybe that night, give them something, which which I we were doing, too, is giving the officers involved in the shooting that night a document, a piece of paper, basically summarizing. Here's what's going to happen and because they're going to forget things. So they would take that home with them and at least have that. So here, here's the process here. Here's going to happen. You'll have to, you'll get a compelled interview. If you have any injuries, EAP will do this here. This will be your status and kind of to, to let them know. So to everybody's point that's been made and, and Laura lastly there is just that you, you have to be prepared and use some people like Chris or a Jim or somebody in your agency who's been involved in a shooting. who can kind of start the process for you. Is that the one you're talking about there, Steve? Yeah, the stages of an aftermath. So the exhilaration stage, remorse stage, and the uh, rationalization stage, kind of like Chris talked about. And, and they're given different titles at times. Basically, kind of talks about a little bit what an officer will go through. And, and like I think Laura said, you'll be some officers. I've had officers had an accidental discharge and they're bawling their eyes out. Other officers who've been shot at and killed the guy and or cool as a cucumber, as she used that phrase. And so everybody's different, but there's different stages sometimes they go through. And the other document, Adam, if you find it, is the officer instruction sheet. Um, should be on there somewhere. I got you right here. Okay. So it would be something like that that we would give to the officer, and it just kind of explains to them, here's what's happening to you. Because, again, they're – they're hearing a thousand things the night of the shooting, you know, different people talking to them, asking them things and this and that. And here's what's going to happen. And their head's spinning at that point. So it's beneficial if you can give them something that once they get home that night and they settle down, they can kind of read something and at least have an idea. Here's here's how the process is. Yeah. And, and one of the things, too. So anybody who's watching the video and if you're just listening to this afterwards on audio, all of these resources that we've been referencing are going to be available uh, right on the website. So on the breakdown.ca forward slash IRT for round two, all of these resources are going to be listed under officer involved shootings for everybody to have access to. So our uh, our experts here have, have graciously given me a ton of uh, materials and uh, we're going to make sure that those are shared with everybody. So. Uh, let's bring this back up. There you go. So yeah, we, I'm just on a note of checklist. Um, if people think that's odd or so, I mean, pilots use checklists. And the same yeah. pilot gets in the same seat for like, like real commuter flights, you know, four or five times a day. Like, Good he knows, example. He knows it blindly. Sits down, goes through a checklist of what he has to do. Um, as, a, as an EOD guy, I have a checklist. Right. I, I know what I'm doing, but you know, as we said, you know, emotions involved and everything else. And you've been in a very uh, stressful, complex situation. Revert it back to a checklist so you don't miss things. Don't forget things. Right. So checklist helpful for all kinds of stuff. But especially in this, yeah, when everything's uh, so charged, it, it's really going to help. 
and even for your own, uh, um, like your own family survival guide for afterwards or so, right? Just go through the checklist. You know, leave one for your spouse or so. Here's the things that that your spouse may have to do, or or somebody else uh, in your family. You know that you may not be able to, or you're missing it, right? So give them a checklist as well. That was that was something that came up in our conversation. I thought that was really interesting. I want. I'm glad that this came up now because I want to want to speak. Have everybody speak to it. Is the toll that these incidents take on your immediate family, um, your circle of friends and colleagues? Because it's not just a, it's not just you that's experiencing it as the experiencing it as the officer. Your family's involved. Um, one of the one of the examples that was given to me was. Um, with social media now, having to go into your child, if you have children, having to go into their school and just letting their teachers or principals know, hey, you know, I was involved in an incident. There's going to be news about it. There's going to be stuff on social media. Is there a way to not maybe not shelter the, the students, but at least the teachers are prepared if the questions get asked or if there's conflicts between the, your child and other students or things like that? So um, what are who wants to take that one? Well, I'll tell you what happened. It happened with me. Um, uh, <laughs> I right after this thing hit, um, uh, I was still in charge of the task force at the time. So what I wanted to do is control the scene. So everybody starts showing up. I mean, I still distinctly remember the elevator opening up and cops just falling out of the elevator onto the onto the floor. And then another group coming up the stairs. And, and along with those was my immediate boss, the deputy chief, and the chief of police. And uh, we had bullet holes all over the place. Uh, so I started saying, listen, knock on doors. And nobody answers. Kick the doors in in case one of these bullets went through. You know, I'm, I'm doing all this stuff. And my chief said to me, are, are you hit? And I said, no, I don't think so. And when I said, I don't think so. They went nuts and they, they, they slammed me against the wall, literally. And because I said, I said, I felt something in my back, but I think it was when I was picking Jerry up and they, they just ripped my clothes off me to see if I was shot. Because as we all know, you can be shot, stabbed and not even know it, you know, under this kind of stress. But I was, I, I, I was, um, uh, I'm not ashamed. It's kind of funny to me now, but there's that hypothalamus part of your brain, the reptilian part of your brain, the emotional part of your brain. Then you got the prefrontal cortex that makes you human. And those two things were in battle. And um, the guy the, who was running the investigations commander at that point, um, he started taking control and I screamed at him and I said, I got it. And my boss and chief literally had to kind of pull me physically out. And I started screaming at both of them. And I said, look, nobody can do this better than I can. You know that. That's what I said. It's the, the arrogance is ridiculous, you know. But the adrenaline, I probably got 220, you know, beats a minute heartbeat. Um, and I'm screaming at my boss's face. I can do this better than anybody else. And he looked at me very calmly and he goes, yes, but should the person involved run the scene? And I went, no. <laughs> so, so he takes me out. He puts, you know, I have to go in the ambulance. And I had blood all over me because of Jerry. And it was all over my head. And there was a rumor that got out right away that I was shot in the head. So I get out and there's helicopters above us. And I went, damn it. So I pick up my cell phone and I call my wife. Uh, and I said, listen, I was just involved in a shooting. I have not been shot. Jerry, one of my guys got shot. But I have to go to the hospital. So I'm in the back of an ambulance, but I'm okay. I have not been shot. So get yourself down to good Sam. Um, but take your time. I'm fine. That's literally how I, I was over the phone. She picks the phone up and calls another police officer. And says, not from my, my department. Jim says he was just in a shooting, but he hasn't been shot. Is there any chance he's lying to me? And the cop goes, oh, yeah, he's probably lying to you. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so my wife and son blow about nine red lights to get down to the hospital. Um, and then at the hospital, I got the – none of us – Jerry was hit. Um, and I, I – I, it was like out of a movie. I grab, literally grab the doctor and go, that's my guy. You better take care of him like, like an idiot, you know. Even in the midst of all that emotion, I realized I was nuts. Um, and the thing that calmed me down is the guys came in and told me the young guy, Joey, was bouncing off the walls. And uh, so I had to go in and, you know, I kind of calmed him down. But, but the, the amount of things that go on in your head uh, 
it's just it's like a computer going in 50 different directions it's really it's really it's it's mm -hmm. it's an unbelievable thing and for somebody at that moment you know steve to come in and go all right tell me everything that happened in <laughs> chronological order everything you know i feel like are you nuts you know right i, I yeah. estimated I, I i went back to the scene and i estimated the guy who was the forensics guy worked for me and uh as he met me, he goes, you, you shouldn't be here. I go, I'm not officially here. And he goes, come on, Jim. And I said, I just want to see the scene. So they let me go up and I had a sign. I was there, but we're going up in the elevator and he goes, Hey, what, what's your estimate from the door to the corner where you got, you know, Jerry, where all the blood is. And I literally said to him 250 feet. <laughs> it was like 46 feet. <laughs> so when I saw the hallway again, it looked incredibly small. Mm -hmm. Trying to get out of that hallway dragon jerry I, I i looked at the end i go it's a football field you know what right. i mean so it, it really is remarkable what happens no matter how much you train some of this stuff is is going to take over and, and even that's a good point uh jim for somebody if you're involved in the shooting it always astounded me that when i would get to the point of interviewing the officer and, and again under the old format it was months later that they never went once went back to the scene to to do like a, a refresh their memory kind of scene uh, thing I'm talking about like an outside scene. They certainly can't go knock on somebody's door and say, hey, I want to go back and look at the apartment where my shooting was. But they would come in for their interview and their attorney, who they were like horrible. Sorry, Laura. Uh, you're certainly <laughs> to separate in terms of what you do for the officers. But there were attorneys who never said to the officer, hey, let's go back to the scene and do a walkthrough so you can familiarize yourself and just like Jim alluded to you you go back and you what you think was 10 feet away is 40 feet away and and so it's important to do that pre walk through if you can can an argument be made that doing walkthroughs of scenes aren't good for the mental health of the officer or conversely that they are good for the mental health of the officer I think that would depend on the on on the incident, but don't you guys agree? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it depends on what happened. Yeah, and the you officer. Know. Yeah, and, and to me, that goes to my my feeling yeah, is. Sorry. Go ahead, sorry, Chris. Mike. I'll let you. Yeah, go ahead, you, Chris. You speak, and I'll go after. Go ahead. It really depends on you, know, and like we don't work well in, in a vacuum, so we're not going to. Sometimes we need answers we don't have. And like you say, you go there and the, and the sizing is all you, you remember. So it, it may be, you know, uh, for you to go through and, and kind of maybe like rationalizes things for you, uh, puts it in perspective and just kind of go like, as you said, like, wow, it felt like forever dragging down this hallway and it's 40 feet. Um, on the other side, depending on how that officer is doing in, in regards to the whole issue of uh, being involved in that shooting it, it may trigger things on them and they don't want anything to do with it others may just want to like okay i want to go walk it again to you know maybe better myself for uh in case the next time i'm involved in something so i have a better idea and understanding about my depth perception uh going off or or whatever else missing other little uh cues into uh, details surrounding the, the incident it's totally going to be up to the individual yeah, so I was going to say, I think it's beneficial, and, and I take exactly what you say, Chris. You, you have to kind of gauge the officer, too. Maybe for me, like maybe a little bit of a different analogy, when I'm interviewing the officer, when I was under that old format, I, I didn't have an opportunity to take him back and walk to something his attorney should have done with him pre-interview to help him. So what I would do is I would oftentimes play the radio transmissions for him, him or her, basically to put them back in that moment. So refresh their memory. And, and there was times where I, when I, as soon as I hit the button to play and they started hearing it, they would break down and, and we would have yeah. to take a break from the, from that portion of it. So it kind of goes to what you're saying, Chris, is you have to kind of know the officer and, and if they are going to have a, a reliving of the event, which we want for the recall of the event for the interview process, but knowing that they might relive it again. So we have to be prepared for that. And if they need some time to, to take a break and compose themselves, and then now we're going to get back into it. So everything you just mentioned is, is beneficial and necessary. You can almost put it into uh, an analogy. You look at a lot of the, uh, the vets, you go back over now to um, mm -hmm. 
we're, we're losing more and more, not many left, but you know, like you go to Normandy or any of these other big battle sites, you know, they go there. Right. And, and, you know, maybe it's good for them reconnect with some of the, uh, the people that were there and put it in, in perspective or, and, or give them closure. Sure. Right? Because after, after an incident, if they never go back and it, it doesn't, you know, you don't get the closure on it. They, right. Where did it go from there? Are they just moving off to something else? So again, up to the individual. Yeah, there's not. There, there can't be just one size. Right. If you guys, you guys ever read the read the um, the book uh, Onion Field by uh, yeah, the killing in California of the officers. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know they made uh, um, it was uh, uh, well now I forget his name, but anyway, the the uh, the officer who survived that, uh, Ian Campbell was one who got shot, um, and Carl. I forget his name. Anyway, they literally made that officer forced him to go into roll calls for, I believe, months, and basically admit that he made a mistake by giving up his gun. And uh, you know, jeez. Yeah. So I mean, it's it's totally dependent. I mean, it it was dumb for me to go back within an hour. I, you know, that that was just stupid. You know, but I'm a control freak, so you know, so I, you know, I wanted to go back there. But then when I went back a few days later, when they were really doing, the, the, you know, after they did the diagrams and I was able to see stuff, uh, it is pretty amazing because of my recollection. I actually told them one one went right by my ear. I, I know it. I, I know that's impossible that I know it, but I know it. And he goes, no, no. And they took me down there. Look, at this is where your shoulder hit the wall. There's the bullet. And uh, when I saw it, 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 you know, it just opened my eyes up. Every, everything, everything did st- not everything. A lot of stuff started to come together. Uh, but for two days before I went back there, you know, I was bouncing. And what I did is I just had, I had my boss and my sergeant, sergeant worked for me, come to my house that night. We had a beer. We just kind of talked it out. Um, but all three of us, different. Joey shot a ton of rounds at this guy. So that was on his mind. And then Jerry's the one who got shot. Uh, so we all had different perspectives on, on every level from start to, 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 to this day, it, it's different. So, Does anybody have any other thoughts on the process of what happens after the incident, what we should be doing with the officer? Some, some things that we definitely should be doing with that officer, whether it be getting them, you know, re-kitted up and back on the range to, to get some rounds down range, even if they're going back to on duty or not. Um, like what, what process should be followed? What, what does the science say is helping? Does, any, does yeah. anybody know any act, actual science? Because everybody's different. Right. Steve, mm-hmm. you interviewed more guys than anybody I know. And yeah, yeah, I was just different types of reactions. Yeah. And I was just going to, you guys, because you've been involved in it, but yeah, you, you have to have something in place where you're going to, have some protocol where you want to get them back into the game, so to speak. But again, everybody's different. Some officers might take a little bit longer to get them back to a hundred percent if they ever get back to a hundred percent. So yeah, that's the process. And then um, as Jim just said, there's no exact science to it. You know, the big thing is we, right, Chris. you want to gauge that officer, right? Not just, you know, get them back onto the range and shoot. I mean, we're, we're past the days of here's your replacement firearm, get out on the road. Um, right. We have a, a policy now about uh, post-incident firearms exposure, right? And so you come in and I help write that policy because we didn't have one before. And it used to be like pretty much here's your here's your replacement, you know, sidearm and, and off you go whenever you're returning back to work. And we looked at it and it's like, well, we just, in part of that peer group, when officers were going back, we'd take them, we'd take them up to the, uh, um, like the tack shop, back up to our, where our uh, tack team is based, and we'd shoot in the range there. And it's like no pressure, informal, just get back to, you know, uh, shoot the firearm, you know. The officers have never used that firearm. Yeah, it's going to, it's sighted and it's a pistol, but... They haven't used it, right? Meanwhile, their firearm, they probably qualified X number of times with it, that whatever range practice, the, the way the feel in, in the hand. So we get them into the shooting, right? And yeah. we make it uh, an unstructured fun thing. Get out, draw, fire a couple of rounds, and we'll start shooting some steel plates. So it takes it from, you know, back into a more, 
you know, fun, less uh, stressful way of using their firearm. Because the last time they used it was, you know, engaged in, in somebody in a life-threatening uh, manner. So put them back into it that it's not so focused that you got to get back into this and, you know, shooting you know, human targets. You're not going to do that, but that's going to be part of the judgment training that will get you back into as well. But I, just uh, get back into using no, go ahead, Chris. Oh, oh, I, I, what I was like Chris just brought something up that it's funny. We we're talking about memory. Just just popped in my head. Yeah. I haven't thought about it in years. They took my gun, and every day I kept that. They replaced the exact gun, six hour uh, two twenty three, two two three, and uh, and uh, or two twenty eight, whatever the hell I had back then. They gave <laughs> me the same damn gun, the same gun, and every day I went to them. When am I getting my gun back? Mm. Yep. I wanted my and, turn back, you know, and it's funny. I haven't thought about that in years, Chris, till you brought it up. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, we kind of go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, and that's, that's an individual thing. Some yeah, right. don't care what they get back. Right. Others are, I want mine back you know, Chris, right. because you know, it worked and it saved you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't even know if that was it. I, it, it was kind of like making me whole again, I think, you know, because I'm not a gun guy. I'm a, I'm a good shot. But as you can tell, I can't remember two, two you know, 220, 221, whatever it takes. Um, you know, <laughs> Mr. Mom. Mr. Mom, right. But there was yeah. something about that. I can't remember exactly why now, but I was always, when am I getting my gun back? And I mean, I, I knew the process. I knew the protocols. I wanted my, my gun back. And as soon as I got back, I remember I went and shot it. But it, it, let me, I'm, I'm just going to kind of end with this on my, uh, from my perspective is uh, in this area is I think, the, I think the key to success in any organization is first line supervisors. Mm-hmm. And uh, these guys are the ones who should know all of their people intimately to some level. They should know them as individuals. And I think if you have a good relationship with your guy, that supervisor should be involved in, making sure stay, staying with the officer, you know, contacting him or her, you know, every day, Hey, how you doing? Just, you know, want to know what's up, take them out for a cup of coffee or something. If they're taking a week or so off, go visit them, let them get an idea. You know, Cause I, I already know these guys, you know, I had like 20 some guys when I retired, I didn't know everything about them, but I knew them all. I knew, I knew them all. And I could, you know, like any relationship, you can tell if something's wrong right away and, um, and I, will tell you, I, I feel a little bit bad about that because I didn't do that well enough with Jerry. I, I didn't do that well enough with Jerry because eventually at first I did a lot, but he was never able to come back to work. He had to go through all these surgeries because he got shot in the arm and wrecked his uh, radial nerve. And um, eventually life just gets in the way. And I, I lost touch with him. The next thing I know, he, he moved out of state and mm-hmm. Facebook reconnected us. And I told him, I called him and I said, I, I apologize for not continuing that relationship after a few months. And uh, to this day, I feel bad about it. There's, there's one thing um, and I'm looking at the notes that uh, I think, I think Chris is the one that you sent me. Um, And this is an interesting one too, to hear from both the the Canadian and the U S perspective. But it's about corners inquests and compelling officers to, attend these inquests and then be interviewed by every single interest group who has their name associated with the inquest um, and having to relive and go through the the same scenario over and over and over and over again. So um, I think Chris, that was you. So maybe I'll let you speak to that. Sure. I I look at it because up here, we're going to have a coroner's inquest. It's like almost considered an in custody death. Uh, Police cause the death of somebody uh, justified at all. Um, that inquest can go anywhere from a year, a couple of years, three years or more after, uh, the incident, right? Uh, the officer has been cleared. Um, it's been investigated now, you know, three years later, you're testifying at a coroner's inquest and that's bringing everything back up for that officer. Meanwhile, we're all talking about, um, mental health, well-being, PTSD, etc. You're making this officer go through it all again. You're making their families go through it all again. You're making, you know, the other officers associated with that incident go through it all again. When there's nothing to be gained from their testimony at the coroner's inquest, right? We have reasons for the inquest, you know, determine the identity of the uh, deceased, 
uh, date and time of um, the incident, um, you know, by what means, you know, gunshot wounds or whatever. And then, you know, we look at, was it, you know, homicide, suicide, accidental misadventure. And the homicide doesn't have any culpability assigned to it, just purely in the medical uh, aspect of it is person killed by another person. Um, we have the agreed set of facts and circumstances. It's been investigated. You have all the investigators notes, you have all the forensic evidence there. And now to have this officer get in a coroner's inquest and possibly have eight, 10 attorneys ask the same questions. And all I ever care about is like going through that incident. Meanwhile, it has nothing to do with the interest group that they're uh, uh, representing. And they're asking the same questions over and over again. And what what's to be gained from that? Is there right. something similar to that in the U.S., Laura? Or are you, are you familiar? Yeah, there there is, and, and you know, and of course, I can only speak to Illinois state law because that's where I practice. But basically, you know, Chris is is one hundred percent correct. Um, a coroner's inquest, basically, and I'm I'm being very general here. It's a it's an inquiry into the manner and the cause of an individual's death. And, and that's it in a nutshell. And uh, um, I've been fortunate enough in, in my practice where um, not every officer has been required to testify in a coroner's inquest. Um, there have been a couple. Uh, and, and it's concerning for me as an attorney because, you know, it's a statement by, another op- by an officer in another hearing. And, and, you know, of course, as an attorney, I'm always concerned about um, the number of statements that an officer gives and then not only the number of statements that an officer gives, but the minor inconsistencies, which are normal, um, by the way, um, that can be taken out of context. You know, so so the less uh, number of statements that an officer gives, you know, the better off my client is. Uh, especially when it comes to a criminal, you know, prosecution or uh, potential uh, civil rights lawsuit down down the pipe. So from my personal experience, I've been able to limit uh, the exposure of my client being the police officer and um, the coroners in the incidents that I've been involved in. They were able to uh, work around uh, my client's testimony by having the investigator who interviewed my client testify to the six or eight jurors or whoever is there as part of the coroner's inquest. So that way, my client was not exposed to to that. That's a yeah, that's a good idea having the lead investigator who has mm-hmm. all the information, and then you know that that makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Steve, have you ever been involved with something like that? No, nothing like that. And I can't imagine putting an officer through that, the coroner's inquest. Um, I, I like what Laura just described, that you can have a representative, per se, go and, and take care of that. Because, like Chris said, you're reliving the whole thing and you're now answering questions, oftentimes from those who are um, don't really know what to ask questions about. It's like asking a carpenter to critique the work of a plumber. You know, you, you, uh, it's the same thing. Now, somebody's questioning him about it who really doesn't know what Chris even does and, and what happens when he's involved in a, in a shooting. So, you know, I, I just want to touch real quickly. We're getting close to the three hours. Um, I mean, we, we're going to keep going as far as you guys want to stay on, but um, it also brings up the other topic of um, having these oversight committees, these civilian oversight committees, when it comes to investigating these incidents um, and the plethora of issues um, that come, but it's been we've spoken to a lot of it already. Talking about their their not having a complete understanding of either the role of the police officer, having the experience, or even having training in human factors or investigation and, and interviewing skills. Um, so, where is is there a need? Do you think that there is a need to? Obviously, there's a need to have oversight committees, and and I think everybody understands that. But should they be limited to what they're able to do when it comes to an OIS incident? Yeah, again, re, uh, re, go to calvary.com sometime in the next, uh, I, uh, this week I'm assuming uh, the article will come out. Uh, my opinion is in there. And what I say is, look, at if you're going to be on these oversight committees, your only uh, criteria can't be that you hate cops. Um, and uh, you should go on 200 hours of ride-alongs. I think you need to do some kind of um, pass some kind of a test when it comes to human performance, human factor science, something like that. And then um, uh, 
show some, you know, go, go on the range, go through some shoot, don't shoot scenarios. Uh, so you have some kind of an idea of what the heck you're talking about. But when, when you see these um, uh, in, in this one article in this thing in Oakland, uh, the, uh, the civilian review board who has zero experience in investigations and zero experience in law enforcement basically said that the professional investigations that were done by experienced law enforcement officers was tainted. Uh, so that's why they, um, they uh, disregarded it and fired the officers. Um, and what's also interesting, I didn't put in the article when you read, when you read the articles about this, uh, they openly said, well, they could get their jobs back because there is a process to this. They, they could. And, and, and my way of reading that is you don't care if they get their jobs back. You had to make a statement. And um, uh, I think it's I think it's it's dangerous on many, 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 many levels to allow people with zero training um, to make these kind of decisions who haven't proven themselves to know anything about what they're investigating. I agree a hundred percent with what Jim just said. And, and in fact, we need to educate the evaluators, especially when they're civilians in Philadelphia, we have a police advisory commission comprised of civilians who are appointed by the mayor. Um, and they're allowed to come out given a briefing of the incident. They're not allowed inside the crime scene, inside the tape. So they're, they're given a briefing of the incident. So they have some knowledge of it and they can follow along in the investigation. And by follow along, I mean, they can be involved in some parts of the interviews or actually the interviews of the discharging officers. Uh, they're not investigators per se, where they're going to go and test things or, or do anything like that. But it, it's paramount that we, as Jim said, put them through the academy, give them some force on force training. Um, it, that's eye opening for them. Also, it also helps the police department build their capital. So down the road, should they face a, a bad police shooting? And, and it's not a matter of if it's when that you have those folks who are the community, the police advisory commission in the case of Philadelphia, who maybe can say to the community before they get an uproar, hey, let's wait a minute. We've seen the process. We work hand in hand with the police, let them do their job. Uh, we trust the process for lack of a better description. Well said. All right. Well, let's, you know what? I, um, I think we've covered all the topics that we were brought up prior to this. Um, we haven't gone a ton into them, but if somebody's listening to this, so the officers, the trainers, the people that are listening to this, if they want to get more information, um, I'm going to give each one of you a shot to, uh, to kind of, <laughs> to, to let everybody know where they can find you. Um, obviously we're going to have the resources. I'm going to have links to each, every one of you guys, uh, your websites, emails, all that stuff on the website at uh, thebreakdown.ca forward slash IRT. But if you want somebody, uh, you have some resources, they can contact you directly. Where can they find you? So uh, let's start with, uh, let's start with Steve. Steve, why don't you go ahead? Where can people find you? It's just what you just mentioned, uh, Adam, and it's www.policeshootingspros.com. And also my LinkedIn page, feel free to send me a question or whatever it might be after this. Hey, Steve, you mentioned this. Can you kind of elaborate on that? I'll be glad to answer anybody's questions. Awesome. Thanks. Chris, where can, uh, where can people find you? Uh, again, off of uh, your website, off LinkedIn, I'm on there. Uh, same thing. Shoot me a message. I'll get back to you. Or uh, info at haybox.ca, H-A- ybox.ca and uh, that'll come to me as well and i can answer your questions there awesome thanks uh laura i know your mic's muted there you go honey <laughs> yeah, there go. you go all right um you can reach me uh, i'm very active on linkedin uh you can also reach me at my uh, firm website uh, www.diano spelled d-e-a-n-o scary s-c-a-r-r-y.com um, or you can email me at lscary at deano dot or deanoscary.com. Awesome. All right, Jim, I'll leave the last word to you, my man, uh, our new, my new partner in crime. So, well, an Irish bar on Friday nights, I can usually be found there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, 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 directly. You can just email me at Jim at caliberpress.com and, Caliber, caliber spelled C-A-L-I-B-R-E. Um, and like Steve, I'm on LinkedIn. And I, I'm pretty good at getting back to people, but uh, 
you know, check our website out. We've got a lot of good classes, that, like you mentioned, and um, uh, and I'm it, 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 contact me, and I'll get back to you. Right on. Awesome. So um, I'm just going to ask you guys to stay on real quick. Um, we're going to end this off here, but we'll do a quick AAR before uh, we cut everybody loose, but we're going to end the live stream. So thank you to everybody who's been on the stream that's stuck it out. That There's 10 people that are still here, which is super impressive. Is that um, us? Yeah, including, no, not including you. So, okay. All right. So we, yeah, we get credit too for being here. Um, so thank you to everybody for joining us. Um, the next Instructors Roundtable, again, last Thursday of every month at uh, breakdown.ca forward slash IRT. Last Thursday, every single month at 1800 Central, 6 p.m. Central. We'll see you there. Make sure, if you haven't already, subscribe to the Tactical Breakdown podcast. We look forward to uh, putting out content for you each and every week. So we'll, uh, we'll talk to you soon. Stay safe. All right, that's the conclusion of our panel discussion on officer-involved shootings for this Instructor's Roundtable. Thank you for being here and joining us. The next IRT is going to be on March 26th, again at 6 p.m., so the last Thursday of each month at 6 p.m. And the next topic is going to be on firearms training. So, of course, that's going to roll in some of the information you got from IRT1 on use of force. It's going to roll in some stuff from IRT2 on officer-involved shootings and a whole bunch more information from you with four more of the top subject matter experts in the world. So make sure to stay tuned for that. Mark it on your calendar. Join us live. You can ask questions. You can get your answers. Really excited that we can keep putting these out there for you. And if you haven't already, please consider subscribing to the podcast on your podcast player. And consider subscribing to the YouTube channel to get updates and alerts when those IRTs go out live. So we'll see you next time and we'll see you at the next panel, at the next roundtable. Until then, stay safe.